Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are talking about something that we a lot of us don't think about a lot, except you hear about it every 10 years, the U.S. Census, and it seems like the most sort of perfunctory, you know, you're counting all the people up and collecting some data, but it actually has, I think we all know it's important, but under the Trump administration, uh, before the Trump administration, but especially under the Trump administration, it's become highly politicized in some really key ways, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm joined by our colleague Tierney Sneed. Hello. Hey, how are Great you? Great to be up here. Yeah, yeah nice to have yeah. you in the studio. Well, yeah. yeah, Tierney um, works out of our our DC office, and we record uh, the podcast out of our New York office. But she's up here actually for a trial about the census, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Here with uh, my colleague uh, David Tainter. Hey, Josh. As always, hey, how you doing? Good. Um, let's so let's get into it. But before we do that, let's quickly discuss our sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Now, you guys have Grady's in in DC. Yeah, now too, we love right? it. We so, love do, it. now do you have the boxes or the bottles? Oh, we have the boxes. Boxes. Yeah, like we're big... kind of pretty much like the boxes too. Yeah. yeah. Like originally we had the bottles, now it's pretty much all boxes. Yeah, we're all about that iced coffee. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It's great. Oh, we. I. I have some right here. Um. All right. So. Do you want to get in on New York City's favorite cold brew? Well, of course you do. Head over to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brew, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. I don't know how they do that, but they do it. It's the chicory, I think. It is. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's maybe that's it. Okay. Maybe maybe like instead of Splenda or sugar, <laughs> we should like have like ground up chicory. There you go. As our sweetener. Grady's is independently owned and operated, and has been brewing in New York City since 2011, and with no like huge tax giveaway. Like Amazon gets, <laughs> thanks right. De Blasio and 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 Cuomo, uh, owned and operated, and New York, uh, uh, independently owned and operated, and brewing in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20 percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Okay, so Tierney. Now, for, before we get into the census, uh, the the. The main story that you have been on for us over the course of the year is the Russia story, the kind of the the, the big continuity. What um, do you have a sense of? We had this kind of pre-election quiet period, and now there's all sorts of like rumors and stuff about what's going on. 
uh, are, are we supposed to be expecting something in the next I mean, few days or week? The or? people who have been covering it, we're very, uh, I was at the D.C. courthouse last Friday, you know, the first Friday after the midterms, and we'd heard all this talk about how they would be going quiet before the midterms, but then, you know, there might be some fireworks afterwards. So there is, you know, at least a half dozen reporters TV news trucks, everyone's sort of waiting for, you know, something to be unsealed or maybe a high profile witness coming into the grand jury. And it was completely quiet. Like, I don't think anyone even saw any grand jury members come in that day, which who knows what that means. But I think we'll be doing the same thing tomorrow. Friday has been the day that usually you have some action. Right. So isn't that the thing? Like, I I feel like there's been some other like Michael Flynn was on a Friday. Right. That usually the assumption is things are going to happen on Friday. So everybody will be there. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, you have. At least with uh, Manafort, what happened was the indictment was sealed on a Friday, but then it ended up being Monday that he turned himself in. Right. But one of the things that, you know, I do when I'm at the courthouse is there's actually a little binder where you can look and see if any sealed indictments have been filed. And we've been keeping track of the case numbers of sealed Mm -hmm, indictments. mm -hmm. They could be for anything. Like, just because it's a sealed indictment doesn't mean it's Mueller or Russia related. But Well, let me ask you this, because I know this is something we've been we have been talking about kind of in the editorial chats that there do seem like there's a bunch of sealed indictments yeah. and we don't know what they, you know, they could be, they could be about anything. We don't know, but there's now, do we have a sense of, you know, to the extent that there's a normal, do we have a sense of like, oh, normally over the course of six months, there's, you know, X number of sealed indictments and now there's a lot more or is it a? This is a kind of about the norm. There's always a, yeah, a few sealed indictments. Yeah, it's it's something or? I need to look into. It's it's hard to tell. I mean, I've been paying close attention to it, particularly if there's you know sealed case numbers that the numbers are grouped together. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's a group of plaintiffs. You don't know. Um, but yeah, it's really in in the timing of them and when they're being filed. Um, I mean, I think I think there's only like one instance where it was like really obvious what was going on. It was a day that Manafort, there was a superseding indictment filed against him. And since it was the same case number, but still technically a sealed indictment on that on that sh- binder that shows you, you right. know, case numbers of sealed right. indictments, everyone knew, oh, there's a sealed indictment filed, right. superseding it. And this is probably the superseding indictment we keep hearing hinted about. Right, right. So it's, you know, it, we haven't had a, a, you know, it's it's rarely that it's that obvious, but I do, uh, we have been keeping track of, you know, when new things are getting filed. And, and there's what, like literally a binder, like, so it's very old school, like yeah. a little, you open it up and you see like. Yeah, and then, you know, every time I go, you just kind of turn through and it's got, you know, the unsealed indictments, you know, all the information, right, right. you know, the crimes and the names of the defendants and the judges. Oh, so it's all there. It's not just the sealed yeah, stuff. You just so see you, that, yeah, like so some you, are kind of blank somehow so, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's just a sheet that's says, you know, sealed, and all it has is the case number and the judge. And, you know, I'll even go and double check to see, oh, this judge, I should see if he's, you know, got any sealed arraignments happening today or anything, because, you know, know, I think there has been instances, I mean, that people that we didn't know are important were just trotted through the courthouse and everyone missed them because they didn't know what to look for. And then, you know, weeks later, we find out that, they, oh, yeah, these people were already arraigned under seal and... We just didn't even know about it. Interesting. So there's so the way the case numbers work, there's not, you know, it's not like uh, wait, what, what is Jean Valjean's number uh, three four, four wait, what is in it? Les Mis? Yeah, <laughs> not sure. Your kids, wow. your kids would yeah, be my, experts. No, yeah. well, that's the thing. My, my my kids got very into Les Mis a few years ago when the when the movie came out, and so it's like five. 
It's something like that. Anyway, the, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> the, the, the point is, it's not like there's like a Mueller number. You could say, ah, oh, no. Mueller. So it's, it's, I mean, there is a grand jury number, mm-hmm. and sometimes, not in all cases, but sometimes they'll also have the grand jury number. And that's been actually more helpful in knowing that a sealed indictment is not a Mueller-related thing, because you'll see the grand jury number, like, okay, that's not Mueller's grand jury. Okay. And that's w- something that... And the way that it works is is there is a Mueller grand jury. Yeah, like he's got and, his there's own. A, and there's okay. a number for it. I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, I've been able to kind of figure out that. And he, I mean, I guess in theory, he could have multiple grand juries. I mean, he had to have a grand jury in Virginia to bring the charges in Virginia that he brought right. against um, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. So, you know, who knows? But there is one particular grand jury, you know, we're at a point that like a lot of us reporters know what the particular members look like. So we literally can just watch them come in. Oh, the actual grand yeah. jury members. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and that's sort of how we know when they're meeting. Um, and some days, you know, they'll be there and the high profile witness just comes right through the front door. So, you know, those are the days like Randy Credico or whatever, where right. we kind of know right away what's going on. Now, geographically in D.C., where is the courthouse? Where uh, does this happen? It's uh, it's like right off the mall. It's like okay. near the Capitol. Okay, so it's down there. Yeah, so it's like a ten minute walk from the Capitol. Got um, it. Got it. Cool. All right. Well, so it's it sounds like it's fair to say that that there is in in DC right now among the reporters who have been on this story, there is a high level of expectation that things are coming. Yeah, and I mean, we're all like showing a, up at the courthouse, right. you know, thinking that today could be the day. Right, right. And, and just this morning before we came into the studio, there were a bunch of Trump tweets that are kind of panicky and uh, yeah. and worrisome. So, you know, maybe that's a sign too. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it seems like there's, so there's a lot of, of, clues that may be clues for nothing, but at yeah. least there's everybody's kind of, ah, uh, you know, this, enough that, reason this that, you know, the and... cable networks are calling their, you know, TV trucks. Right, right, right. Okay. So let's, let's, we know that that is a, a story that everybody is, is hyped up. Well, everybody, including Trump is hyped up about. Um, we have this other story that may seem uh, much more kind of bureaucratic or whatever, but it's actually a big deal. It's about the census and particularly about whether the federal census, which comes up in 2020, should ask about citizenship. So let's start with this. Why why not ask? They ask a bunch of other things. Why not ask about citizenship? So what's been discussed a lot in this trial is about what happens when you add a citizenship question to the census. And what I've learned sitting in it is that there are actually a ton of standards internally at the Census Bureau to you know make sure they're not adding questions for no good reason without proper testing because you know it's super important that every single person participates. And if there's any question that could make them not want to participate, that's got to be mitigated. And there's got to be a really good reason for why you're going to take that risk. And so every single question that gets on there, there's a ton of testing, typically, typically a ton of testing, a lot of analysis of how you do messaging around it, of how exactly you formulate the question, how you order them, because it is so crucial that... You know, ideally, you get people just filling out the form themselves when they get it. You know, obviously, there's all these follow-up efforts with enumerators and whatnot, but the the preference is to get people to fill it out themselves. And so you want to, you know, keep the burden on people as low as possible to get them to do that. So basically, a high 
you you really if you're going to ask a question, there's got to be a really pressing need to get that it, information correct. and balance it against whether people are either scared off or yeah. just like there's too much trouble correct. stuff like that. Okay, so so the issue is whether or not to ask this citizenship question, um, and there's a trial right now. Let's let's set aside the trial for a moment and walk us through who decided this was a good idea, who's against it. Stuff like that question, you know, of putting the citizenship question on the so 2020 who, So who pushed for it, from what we know, is Secretary Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. The Commerce Secretary has oversight over the census, so it was in his legal authority to do this. Um, and it's, it's somewhat of a mystery still exactly why he was pushing it. We just know there's all these internal emails. There's been depositions that back this up, that from as soon as he was confirmed he was pushing for his aides to find a way to get this on the census. And like I said, there's really high bars for how this is all supposed to work. So what we can tell from all these emails and depositions is that his aides basically had to kind of search around the administration and find a reason that they could use as an, a justification to do this and go through all these mechanics. Um, and because he has not been forced to sit in a deposition, the, the federal judge had ordered it, but then the Supreme Court blocked plans to depose him. We don't know exactly what was driving this for him. What we do know is that this has been something that the far right has wanted for a really long time. This was a pet issue of uh, Senator David Vitter. This is something that Chris Kobach wants. And they've been pretty clear about it. What they want to do is count citizens and non-citizens, and in their ideal, undocumented immigrants, so they could redo an overhaul how legislative districts are drawn and how congressional seats are doled out. They think it's unfair that states like New York and California get more congressional seats or that, you know, certain districts get more representatives because of their populations of non-citizens. So we know that this has been a a long-time goal of the the Kobachs of the world. And we know that Chris Kobach was emailing and talking with Secretary Ross during this process last year. Now... So the just to back up here, so the way that the Constitution is written, you do this decennial, just every 10-year census, yes. and the Constitution is pretty clear that you count every, people. Yes. You don't, citizens, not citizens, whether they're here legally or illegally, you're talking people. Mm-hmm. And so when when a, a, a congressional district is made up of, you know, 700,000 or so people, it's people. Yes. And not okay. So that is, and that's always been the way that it's done. Yes. So why does adding the citizenship question necessarily change that? So there's there's two there's kind of two different things that are going to be happening. The first thing is that if you have immigrant populations, immigrant communities who are spooked from participating because of this this question, this is what this trial has been about is kind of figuring out what we know about that then those people aren't going to be counted. So the numbers of people being counted in places like California and New York and and cities and and whatnot, but also in other areas too, you know, it doesn't just break cleanly one way or the other. Their representation is going to shrink just by proxy of them not being counted. Mm -hmm. So that's one way this is sort of... And not being counted because they're like, I'm not going to fill that out. Exactly, exactly. Got it, okay. Um, And then the second step is if, you know, if this question stays and it stays for the 2020 census and this data is provided, if we do see a push to then take this data, I don't think... 
I don't think they're going to try to change how congressional seats are doled out, apportionment, because I think the Constitution is just too clear on that. I think what we will see is a push to change how legislative districts are drawn. So not how seats are doled out, like the number of seats, but then how we turn and draw those districts. Right. So like California still gets the same number of seats, yeah. but how they're actually drawn, drawn in out Texas. could change. Yeah. So what you, would have, what you would have, ironically, is like a place like Texas, which would get you know extra congressional seats because they do have this growing immigrant population. But then the Texas legislature could turn around and when we're drawing those districts, cut those non-citizens out of what they're using to draw these districts. So places that have more weight non-immigrant, you know, suburban, rural, or whatever the, the breakdown is, end up getting more representatives than what cities and, right. you know, high-density immigrant areas which get. Is, which is already what the country is sort of dealing with, yeah. where, where big cities have relatively less representation than rural areas for a bunch of, yeah. for a bunch of different I mean, reasons. you can just see this in, the, in the, the larger narrative of how Republicans can entrench their political power, even if there's, you know more people right. voting right. on the other side. So when we talk about things like people talk about how um, rural areas because of the Senate be, that you have the small, you know, small rural states are overrepresented in the Senate, um, the ways that gerrymandering sort of locked in uh, Republican dominance, that that regardless of the constitutional niceties, the upshot of this is kind of the same thing, entrenching Yes. Power for... Just another yeah. way to create a, an advantage. Right, right. And that first wave of advantage is going to be if there's an undercount. Right, right. So they'll just get that off, off the bat. And then the second wave is if they take that next step after 2020. And if we see states or even localities, it just takes a city council district to seek to draw based on the number of citizens versus the number of everyone. Right, right. And that would be a case that everyone thinks would go up to the Supreme Court. There was a sort of similar case called Evanwell that went up to the Supreme Court uh, a couple of years ago. Um, now, isn't there... So it, it's not just representation, though. It's the, it's the allocation of federal money. Yeah, so the, the voting rights angle's obviously been kind of what started me on this story, voting rights being a big issue for us, but huge ramifications for, you know, how federal funding is doled out, things like Medicaid, the, you know, the, the formulas that are used to dole out Medicaid money, down to how, you know, local governments, uh, you know, figure out how to allocate resources. So one of the witnesses, this, I guess he was last week, he was a New York City official to just talk about how burdensome it will be for them if these numbers are skewed and they can't figure out how to d allocate those resources. Private business is very much dependent on accurate census numbers to do their planning. So you're seeing a lot of private businesses come out and say that they don't want this to skew That's their numbers. So for them, it's 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 just like uh, consumer data. Like yeah. Where are the people? I mean, it's, yeah, it's planning. Right, right, it's operations. Right. You want to know, because the, the, the census, I mean, it's really, you know, incredible. They take this, this survey data and they can do so much with it and help make projections about, you know, social security, what are the age projections and, and all this stuff that a lot of businesses really use and mm -hmm. depend on in making their plans. Have have has has private business has that been a setting again setting aside for now the legal and constitutional issues yeah. have have they really made their voice felt in D.C. about this or are they kind of a secondary or marginal player? In um, this? I think at this point they're they're 
I don't want to say they're secondary. I mean, one interesting thing that happened, uh, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but uh, an executive at Nielsen, you know, the survey company, filed an affidavit in this case, basically saying Secretary Ross, in his memo, kind of announcing that he's adding this question and, and saying why he thinks it's justified, misinterpreted or misrepresented a conversation we had about what would happen if this is added to the census, which I thought was pretty extraordinary. I mean, I think she was, I don't know if she was subpoenaed or what, but, you know, it wasn't like she just liked this voluntarily. I'm sure it was, you know, something that was sort of required of her, but still for her to come out and say, you know, the secretary, you know, is misrepresenting what I told him, I thought was pretty extraordinary. So, okay, so now we have this trial. It's Why, why is it in New York? Just for So there's, there's a couple different lawsuits, I think around a half a dozen lawsuits that have been brought. This particular case is the first one to go to trial, and it's a consolidation of a multi-state lawsuit led by New York, so the New York Attorney General, and a uh, the ACLU brought their own case. So these two cases have been consolidated, and it's the one that's called the lead case that's sort of setting the tone for, you know. So what is the, okay, so um, he's doing this, uh, Ross is doing this, he's Commerce Secretary, so it's under his, yes. the census is under his purview. Um, we think we have a basic sense of why he would want to do this, but what is the what is the basis of a lawsuit? What's the, how is anybody getting into court and saying, he can't do this or questioning why he did this or how yeah, he did so this. So each lawsuit is a little bit different in the in the claims, but the, it kind of breaks down into two major buckets. There is the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, APA, which we're, we're getting a lot of these lawsuits under the Trump administration, which is basically there's rules that agencies are supposed to follow when they're going to kind of execute a change like this. And, you know, it's saying that this is a violation of the APA. The APA has a clause that says courts can step in if a if a agency decision was found arbitrary or capricious. So that's what been a lot about what when we're hearing about the Census Bureau itself, you know, giving advice to Wilbur Ross that this was a bad idea and that, you know, what he thinks it's going to help out with is not going to help out with. I mean, I should I should say that even though we don't know specifically why Wilbur Ross wanted this question, the official reason the administration has been giving is that the Justice Department needed it for Voting Rights Act enforcement. Which, you know, oh, interesting. any former DOJ official will tell you that's BS. Well, and, 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 and what we've seen in the, in the internal records and emails and communications that have been released is that Ross had to basically, like, get the, the DOJ to ask request them it. To yeah, ask it. literally yeah. had a phone call with Attorney General Jeff Sessions last fall to get them to make this formal request. So, okay, so basically there are federal laws that say that even if Wilbur Ross is Commerce Secretary, there's like a standard of reasonableness. Yeah. He can't just do like anything that pops into his head. It has to, and I'm sure there's all sorts of jurisprudence about what's reasonable and stuff like that. But that's the basis, that's the broad basis of the lawsuit. Yeah. So that's one bucket. And then the other bucket is a more constitutional, you know, this will just disenfranchise, you know, certain populations and it's discriminatory towards certain populations. So that's the more constitutional claim. And that's more about the undercount that it was all of itself. The APA is about sort of the process that Secretary Ross went through in enacting this change. So on the, on the representation issue where my head would go in here in New York City, we have a very large immigrant population. So I, as a citizen here, we have budgetary needs because of that. We have representation needs, but uh, like, am, to the extent they're making this argument about people being disenfranchised or damaged by this, 
is it the immigrant populations who are the kind of have the cause of action? Is it the citizens who are how's that how's that all work? So it's just it goes down to this basic idea of who deserves representation in the United States. And up until this point, the idea has been that regardless if you're a citizen or not, every person gets representation. So if you are you don't have to be if you're going to call up your congressperson for a constituent service, they're not going to ask you if you voted for the congressperson. They're not even going to ask you if you're an eligible voter. Because you live in their district, they represent you, and they're going to try to help you. And right, that's okay. kind of the foundational idea here that is going to be, you know, if there is a push to start changing that, is going to be coming under scrutiny, and we're going to be talking a lot about in two years or so. So you're so, – okay, so that's interesting. So, so basically – like, I think normally most of us think about representation as like, I have a right to vote, so I yeah. am represented. But you have this sort of dual sense where there's people who get to vote, but even if you don't get to vote, if you're a resident alien, yeah. that you still, you still have, have a congressperson right, representing who sort of you. represents you. In, okay, yeah. got it. Because you benefit from, you know, the hospitals that right. they get funding for and, right. and right. whatnot. So, okay. So, and, you're, and you're kind of under the laws of this country, so, you know, you benefit from what laws that they pass. Good rep. Yeah, good. Got it. So... Now, so let's talk about Ross for a second. Mm-hmm. Ross is this kind of uh, private equity debt purchase rich dude. Yeah. And um, sort of one of Trump's cronies that mm-hmm. he brought in. He's not necessarily someone who you would think would be, would be you know, kind of thinking in Chris Kobach terms. Like, oh, we yeah. got to get the citizenship question in the census. So, <laughs> so what is the... Not what's been proved in court, but what's the theory about why he got I've on this? I've talked to so many people who have been observing this case, and no one knows. <laughs> it's uh, it's just, uh, I mean, you know, one thing the Commerce Department has been stressing in the sort of statements they've put out defending him, because another aspect of this case is it's come out that he's, you know, said false thing to Congress multiple times about this process. Right. Is that, oh, he was an enumerator, so he has a really sophisticated under, understanding of the census. When was he an enumerator? I don't know. Like but sometime, like, like yeah, when he 50 was, years yeah, ago or knows. something like that? Yeah, okay. And then you, what you're seeing in these emails is that he's asking these basic questions about the census that, like, maybe not the average person would know, but, like, anyone who, cover, you know, has any sort of sophistication. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we don't ask a citizenship question? Oh, non-citizens are counted for congressional apportionment? Like, all these, you know, sort of basic questions he came right. in to not... Knowing for sure is that it. It seems to me that there must have been some sort of like Chris Kobach type who kind of got so, him on. So this. Is what that, we know, you know is that Steve Bannon talked to him on the phone in the spring and said, "Will you discuss with Secretary Kobach this issue?" And then we know that there was some sort of phone call, at least one, maybe two phone conversations that happened with Kobach. There's also an email from Kobach to the to Secretary Ross where he says explicitly. We need this data for you know, so we could stop counting undocumented immigrants for congressional apportionment. I should say that the question that's going on won't ask legal status, so they won't even be able to count who are you know legal non-citizens and who are you know non-citizens who are undocumented. So that's sort of off the table, just right. by proxy of the question that ended up going on there. Right. Okay. But that was at least what Kobach was pushing for at the time. Got it. Okay. So when the Supreme Court allowed him not to be deposed, at least temporarily, were they making a, was that like a substantive decision, like you don't have the right to, or they just like stayed it and said, well, not yet? It's not a substantive decision yet, because there's uh, a bigger kind of petition that the Justice Department has filed that basically they want a, a, 
a decision from the Supreme Court that says lower courts can't consider what Secretary Ross or what any agency decision maker was thinking at the time when they did this. It's all about the sort of paper administrative record that they then created when they were implementing the decision. So that's, you know, that's sort of their vehicle to say. So therefore, he shouldn't be deposed because it doesn't matter what he personally thought about adding this question. It matters is that he went out and the DOJ asked for it. And the D- all you need to assess is whether the DOJ had the right to ask for it. Okay. it does it, so whatever the official reason is, is what you, the court should be allowed to assess. They Did, shouldn't be able to assess what his personal view is on why to add it. So, okay. So does that mean like they wouldn't even that the the plaintiffs in this case wouldn't even have the right to sort of get discovery over emails or it's or it's kind of more more narrowly so kind there of was a, an administrative like record that. that was released the official record that was released that the, the, the administration says if you look at this administration record you will see that we follow the APA that we were in the right we did all the right steps the problem is that the judge has ordered additional discovery and there have been a number of documents that have come out that have sort of undercut that administrative record so basically they're kind of so if I understand this that they are saying, you know, sort of in a formal sense, yeah. we check this box, this box, this box. Yeah. And the plaintiffs are saying, it's not just about formally what you did, it's what you were trying to do. And, it, and, and they're were. saying that if we expand discovery, we're going to see that some of these, you know, boxes that you're saying you checked, you know, there's evidence that sort of undercut that you checked them. Right. So like one example that came out to, in the in the trial today, or yesterday, excuse me, was that a part of these documents was this sort of Q&A that was put together where Commerce asked Census Bureau all these questions about adding the citizenship question, and the Census Bureau gave all these answers, and that was part of the administrative record. Well, it turns out that once they did additional discovery, there was one of the questions that Census wrote was changed when it got to Commerce. So Commerce, we don't know who exactly changed the wording, or at least I don't know. But it seems that the, the allegation that the plaintiffs are making is that Commerce basically doctored an answer that Census gave them got to it. make it look fa- it. more favorable to their position and then put that doctored document in the administrative record. And we only know about it because we got the further discovery and we saw these emails where it was a different different right, answer. Right. And we've got the testimony now of the top Census Scientists saying that was the like the original answer is what he sent off, not this new answer that appeared in the administrative record. So let's assume for the sake of conversation that Ross is not forced to be deposed. Yeah. Does the court? Are we sure that this court has the authority to say, depending on what they come up with, you know, you can't do the census thing, you broke the rules, and that's not going to happen. Is is that clear? So I think the way this plays out, I mean, the sense I've gotten for this judge both in his opinions and now being in the in the courtroom with him and hearing kind of the questions he's been asking is he's ready to rule against this question. He's, Interesting. Okay. He's, I mean, he, he had a preliminary opinion when it was like a motion to dismiss or something that he said, you know, it's more likelier than not that they're going to succeed on their claims, so I'm going to let this go to trial. And then the questions he's been asking has very, been very much nailing down the harms that the plaintiffs are saying and, you know, kind of putting it in the clearest language possible. You know, and the sense I got from him is he wants to write the strongest opinion possible, create a record that really backs it up. And, you know, it, the question is, will the Supreme Court, I mean, it'll go to a, presumably we'll Get go appealed. to appeals a court, right, but right. they've been really trying to push it to the Supreme Court at every step as quick as possible. The government. Yeah. Right. What happens when it goes to the Supreme Court? Do they take up the case? Do they rule in favor of, you know, how do they deal with it? I mean, I think from what we've seen in 
the Ross deposition fight that went up to the Supreme Court and the you know, initial decisions there that Clarence Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch are all ready to just give the government whatever they want. So it's the Kavanaugh and John Roberts that will they want to, you know, take this really, you know, political case? Well, if the record's particularly toxic for the government, will mm-hmm. they want to touch it? Right. Like, is this, you know, the hill you die on for the Trump administration? With with Kavanaugh, is that just because he hasn't been there long enough and we haven't heard anything? Or is there actually some Well, unclarity? because so basically what's happened is in all these initial decisions, you know, that one of the things that happened when they blocked the Ross deposition is that they let John Gore, a top DOJ official, be deposed. And I don't know if it was some sort of compromise or what, but they let that happen. And that's where we saw... The, hard, the, the hardliners on the court dissent and write this dissent that I think pretty clearly indicated that they were ready to let the government anything, do whatever. Right, yeah, anything right, right. goes with this. Got it, got it. And what was interesting is Kavanaugh did not sign on to that public dissent. That doesn't mean that privately he might have voted to dissent. We don't know. Right. But at very least, he wasn't ready to publicly say, this is BS. Gore shouldn't be deposed. The government should be allowed to do this. What are we doing here? The way that the other three got conservative it. justices got did. It. Got it. Well, at least, and I guess we, we, it has been the assumption of many up till now that whatever Kavanaugh's thing is, and obviously uh, Roberts is, you know, very much a, you know, very conservative jurist, but does seem to have a, perhaps just because he's, he's chief justice, a an interest in the legitimacy of the mm-hmm. court that has that has kind of buffered his ideological tendencies mm-hmm. in some cases. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. So when what is the what's the timeline here, just to finish this up? Do we expect like So the trial will wrap up this week, but I think there'll be some a post trial briefing and issues to be dealt with that'll kind of go through Thanksgiving. The judge has indicated he wants to move this along quickly. Obviously, there's a time element here that there's right, a deadline kind of, yeah, to start yeah. printing these forms. So you want to resolve this as soon as possible. So I think the, de- the judge will try to get a decision out as soon as possible. And then, you know, how that works going up to the appeals court. I think both sides will just want to, you know, kind of move yeah, to their end Yeah, it seems like place. time is sort of of the essence yeah, on so every, I think, for everybody. Yeah. I think, you know, it could be at the Supreme Court sooner rather than later. Got it. Got it. Okay. So maybe even like, if not this calendar year, very early next. Yeah, I mean, year. Or this, maybe even this calendar year. I mean, I would have to be. I would say probably next, you know, twenty nineteen. But I think the the deadline to do this printing is like you know spring twenty nineteen. So unless the Supreme Court just kind of you know stays any decision against it and then waits a year to take the case, like they're going to have to figure it out sooner rather than later if they're going to you know overturn any fragile court decision against this question. Got it. Got it. And 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 just a, a, a last point. I mean, obviously, many of us have, have very little trust in, in, in the current majority on the Supreme Court. But the point is that, at least as things normally work, it's not just that they get, when this goes to the Supreme Court, it's not just that they get a decision in principle. They've got a, a a case that says, well, the government said this thing, and yeah. and that binds them at some level. If they, if they have the government saying, well, we just decided, you know, screw New York City and let's yeah. really stick it to New York City, that that yeah. that I mean, it's just like creating, making it more and more painful for someone who's an institutionalist to like make the reach of overturning a decision. Right. Like right. if it was a kind of a weak decision, if there's like a flaw in the reasoning, and they can just nail it on that, and it doesn't seem like an overtly political thing. Right. 
That's right. I think what Judge Furman is going to want to avoid. He wants he wants a, a decision that's going to be just as airtight and locked in as possible. That they're really going to have to stretch to overturn it. What's the judge's name and who and who? Jesse Furman. Appointed by. I want to say Obama, but. Don't quote me on it. I'm pretty, well, I'm on a podcast, but <laughs> pretty sure. <laughs> Too late for that. Yeah, I'm pretty right, sure right. he's an Obama appointee. Okay, got it, got kind it. Kind of like a mellow suburban dad type was his vibe in the courtroom. Got but it. He's had some saucy opinions, so. Really? Okay, well, yeah. we'll have to, we'll have to. Uh, I think I did a Prime post about one of his opinions, okay. just all of his Well, if you're, if you're a lines. Prime subscriber, check that out. Yeah. Um, all right. Tierney, thank you. Well, Thanks it's great to have you here me. in person in yes. the, in the yes. podcast studio. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, well, this is, this is it's it's like legit. Yeah. It's totally All legit. Right. We've got a real studio here. We've come Let far me, away from the nap room. Yeah, exactly. Ugh, that, that was so bad. That's that's why we that's why we stopped doing the the original version of this podcast. Because I was like in the nap room. Yeah. With like, Josh had a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, it kind was, of on it the was, it was very yeah. sad. Yeah, this is this is this is tolerable. Um, I want to remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. If you if you want to give it a try, you can get twenty percent off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Tierney, this is awesome. I, yeah. I guess we we we. It's not that often you're up here, but but uh, hope we have you on the show remotely again soon. Yeah, this was a lot yeah. of fun. We'll and, see and, what and happens tomorrow at the DC courthouse. And I, maybe soon. Maybe we have maybe another. Maybe sooner than later. Yeah, yeah, we have a podcast tomorrow. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank Tierney. you. Bye. All right, later. <laughs>